Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smeichel, and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. I got to tell you, I'm really betwixt and between on whether we can get people to change. My conclusion today, it'll change tomorrow, but my conclusion is that leaders can foster but not force behavioral change. Mm, I also think that change in a person's core, in who they are fundamentally, mm, I don't think that can be externally driven. I just don't think that. And I've got to tell you, I cringe when I hear leaders say, well, people naturally resist change or nobody likes change. I don't think either of those statements are true. I think that leaders, all of us, have to understand change and then learn how to help people make transitions to new behavior. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to come along. It does mean that we need tools to spark behavioral change. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's about sparking the behavioral change that'll help you lead people to excellence in every, well, well, almost every area of their work. I was doing some reading on what psychologists say about getting others to change. And one point that they make is that change is about modifying or altering habits and behaviors for the long term, for the long run. It's not really change if it isn't sustainable. Another theory says that we behave the way that we do because of our intentions and that our intentions are strongly influenced by two things, our attitudes and the social norms that surround us. And that, you know, that was really interesting to me because the implication is that intentions are not fixed Neither are attitudes or or norms. And it tells me that norms are really powerful and that we learn what's acceptable by watching the behavior that's tolerated and the behavior that's encouraged. Like, think for a minute about where you work. What behavior is encouraged? Is it a collaborative place where people get rewarded for teamwork? Is it an inclusive place where people are rewarded for inviting different perspectives and approaches? New employees watch what's going on. They watch what's endorsed and typically they follow along. You can tell a lot about organizational norms when you look at the accepted behaviors, the good behaviors and the not so good behaviors. So if you buy into the theory that the surrounding norms impact our behavior, and I I have to tell you, I do buy into this theory, then that means that if we're surrounded by new or different norms, there's a chance, maybe even a likelihood that our behaviors can change. Martin Seligman, yeah, Martin Seligman, that guy who wrote Learned Optimism, he says that mindsets, meaning our intentions, are not fixed. He contends that we have all these opportunities, like endless opportunities for change, assuming that we're willing to examine our mindsets. Let me go a little further on my interpretation of the psychological factors that impact behavioral change. The next point I want to make about this is that if people believe they can change, they're more apt to do it. 
When we think that we can overcome obstacles and challenges inherent in the change, we're going to give it a shot. Next thing is this. If people really, really want to change, they're more likely to do it. And the reverse is true. If they don't want to do it, they won't. I can speak for myself. I may decide I don't want to change because I don't see any benefits. I may decide I don't want to change because I don't want to do the work involved with making the change. I may decide I don't want to change because I don't see value in whatever is new and being proposed. Or I may do a cost-benefit analysis and decide that the change just isn't worth it to me. And sometimes I won't change because there's something that goes against my grain or goes against my core values. And to tell you the honest truth, sometimes I won't change because I don't have to and I have a stubborn streak. It can be really uncomfortable, but it's important to have conversations with people to hear about why they're resisting. It's not because people hate change or they naturally resist change. There's always something more below the surface. Now, I talked a little bit about the psychological stuff. Now I want to offer some strategies for helping move people along the path of behavioral change. And it may even help you move yourself along. As I was thinking this through, I thought about areas where I need a little transition change or just to to shake things up in my life. First thing that has to happen to spark any kind of change is knowledge and education. For me, I have to know the whys and the wherefores before I'll even think about making a change. I remember when my great nephew Dorian started talking to me about podcasting. He had to really explain to me why this was different, why it was a meaningful platform, why it mattered, and how it works. I need to understand things. He also had to explain how it made more sense than just writing articles. I write a lot of articles for magazines and journals, and in my mind, that was a good thing. But Dora really increased my knowledge so I could do something new and something different, something that was a change for me. I mentioned education. He gave me a very lengthy tutorial on the nuts and bolts of podcasting. And I will tell you, I was a remedial student. He covered everything from how to develop content, to market segmentation, to selecting channels, to finding the right sound studio. Thank you, Dan Savin at Savin Sound. Dor was very patient. He was willing to work with me when I got frustrated with setting up the Apple podcast, the Google podcast, and that's Spotify. And after it was over, he told me he was worried for a minute. I got so exasperated. He thought I was going to say, oh, forget it. Just forget it. But I didn't say that because I'm determined. So when you think about how you want to spark behavioral change or launch an innovation, start by building people's knowledge and by educating them. An understanding of what's potentially going to happen, that can reduce fear and it can reduce anxiety. Training them on whatever is foundational will go a long way in building confidence. When my clients are launching change initiatives, I almost always tell them to start by building confidence in the employee's ability to change. That means making people feel that they have the knowledge base going into whatever's coming. 
Next thing that has to happen is the painted picture. This is second because I believe it's easier to start by building knowledge than by creating images. Now that's just my preference. I am sure you can make a case for starting with the painted picture. And when I say paint a picture, I mean help people see what their changed behavior will, could, or should look like. Your painted picture may be using an example of someone who demonstrates best practices for doing a task or job. You may paint a picture of what a different attitude looks like in customer interactions. I had a client who used Service Excellence Awards. This was on-the-spot recognition so that people could see through the actions of their peers. They got to see what it looked like to live the company's service standards. I think it's also helpful to invite people to paint their own pictures of what changed behavior would look like. Use questions like, what would be different if you were more attuned to the patient's cultural differences? How would that change your interactions with them and their families? Posing questions that ask people to move from autopilot to thought enables them to crystallize images in their heads and eventually in their hearts. The third action that helps in creating behavioral change is articulating what's expected. I mean, specifically what's expected. Well-communicated expectations, that's what influences behavioral change. It's like, it's, it's sort of like putting a code of conduct out for everybody to see. This articulation, this clear articulation is as important at the macro level as it is at the micro. Some organizations use their mission and their values as starting points for articulating expectations, but this only works when the mission and values are alive and evident throughout the organization. It doesn't do so much to articulate mission and values that are just organizational propaganda. That doesn't do anything, really. Whatever you select as critical expectations, they have to be used from the start. I mean, during the recruitment process, throughout the onboarding, and in all training. But it is not just the HR people who should be articulating expectations for the desired behavior. It's every leader that a person encounters. I had the pleasure of working with a stellar, stellar, stellar long-term care provider, and their mission guided absolutely everything that they did. Didn't matter what position you held in the company, you knew the mission. And more important, managers and supervisors used the mission as a tool for helping employees modulate their behavior. Questions like, tell me how that reinforced the mission, or how'd you use the mission to calm that family member down? Those were important questions that managers used. They were taught, they were trained, and they were expected to use the mission as a tool for creating excellence in behavior throughout the company. Of course, of course, of course, articulating expectations trickles. It trickles throughout the organization. It means being able to describe and define the attitude, the aptitude, and the behaviors expected. It means being able to have meaningful conversations. I mean, meaningful dialogue about how people are expected to interact, to produce, and to be in the organization. Now, some of you might be thinking, she's trying to create cookie cutter employees, but I'm not. I'm not. 
The things I'm talking about are strategies to get behavior to align with excellence. That's all. Of course, you still want people to bring their individuality. It just has to be modulated so it works with what's expected or required in the organization. The feedback loop. The feedback loop is the fourth activity that I want to talk about. If we expect behaviors to change and stay changed, we have to give people feedback on what they're doing. And feedback can come from all sorts of metrics. For doctors, it can be that press gainy, those patient satisfaction scores. For retail, it can be customer satisfaction. For retail, it can also be sales and how are we doing here? In any organization, you can and should be gathering information on the experiences of your internal customers as well. And there are all sorts of measures that you can use to get feedback. Now, I have a a little bias here. I believe that the most valuable feedback are observations. What are you noticing about a person's performance? Have you talked to them about areas where they're excelling and areas where change is required for success in that role? And this is where it gets tough. What are you, the leader, doing to consistently get feedback on your leadership style and your skills? Do you have the courage to seek input on behaviors that you may need to change? You know, we can't ask more of others than we're willing to do ourselves. You can only lead behavioral change if you model it. So do you encourage people on your team to have conversations, and I mean candid conversations, with each other and with you? Perceptions, opinions, and attitudes of respected colleagues can, op- can really impact our willingness to change. And that leads me to my fifth point, which is intentional influencers. Use peer pressure to help people modify their behavior. What I mean is you got to create a critical mass of people who are willing to demonstrate the desired behavior. You don't have to say, Joe, look how Juan is doing. Joe is going to see the positive feedback that others are getting and he's going to notice. Initially, he may dismiss it, but as the environment continues to support and reinforce behavioral norms that are different than an employee's demonstrating, that peer pressure will make them change or it's going to make them get out of Dodge because they're so uncomfortable. They're so uncomfortable that they're going to look for other options. But don't always bet on them looking for other options. As the leader, you're responsible for holding everybody accountable to living the behavior that you're seeking. But peer pressure is still important. That that influence of others, be it negative or be it positive, has the potential to guide us into new behavior. It can shame us. It can encourage us. Creating a critical mass of positive influencers can reinforce norms and it can paint an even more clear, even more vivid picture of what acceptable behavior looks like. I think of the use of influencers as mobilizing the crowd. Embracing new behavior happens in steps. It happens in stages. You know, there are early adopters, there are the safe followers, and then there are the latecomers. That comes from the uh, diffusion of change theory. Yeah, that's where that comes from. The interesting things, according to that theory, is that key influencers can cause a tip 
in one direction or the next. These influencers, they're really powerful people, not because of their titles. They're powerful because of the sway they have in the organization. They're respected, they're admired, they're liked. It's these influencers that you want to have as part of your critical mass. They can move the crowd in the direction of a desired behavior. They can be informal coaches, they can be mentors, they can be role models. Just as influencers model the behaviors you're looking for, they can also help you with emotional persuasion. And that's my sixth point. There's some cajoling that may need to happen. You know, we often have to address and elicit an emotional response. I'm not talking about negative stuff like fear and anxiety. You want to use your influence and that of other influencers to create the kind of emotional responses that positively reinforce and nourish people as they're working on changing their behavior. That means making the behavioral expectations personal. Don't be vague or ambiguous when you're asking for different behavior. For example, you could say, I really want you to communicate better with patients. Well, really? What does that mean? If you make it more personal, you can say something like, I want you to focus on listening to patients because that's essential for success in this clinic. I really would like for you to stop interrupting patients and their families when they're trying to explain their symptoms to you. I think you'll be able to create better treatment plans and be less frustrated if you improve your listening. See how that's different from, I want you to improve or communicate better with patients. There's a difference. The emotional persuasion in my second example is the anticipation of reduced frustration. The other element of emotional persuasion in that example is better treatment plans. Both of those things direct attention to specific behavior that needs to change and the benefit for the doctor. Of course, of course, there are benefits for the patients and for the clinics and for the patient's families, but I find it really helpful to identify the win for the person first. It helps to appeal to our self-interest because while we we may not admit it, self-interest drives a lot of behavior. If we can tap an emotion or create an emotional response, the focus on the behavioral change becomes so much more personal. The emotional piece can make it tangible. It can impact attitudes, values, and behaviors in a really lasting way. An emotional pull can provide an incentive to change. So let me get to this seventh and last activity that I want to highlight, and that's recognition. Recognition has got to be customized. Some people want public praise. Other prefer more private recognition. If you get to know your people, you'll know what will have the most meaning for each individual. But whether public or private, it's important to acknowledge the progress that a person's making. Catch people doing things right and acknowledge that. Create an environment where there's a lot of peer-to-peer recognition. Remember, recognition doesn't have to be a plaque or an award or a fat check. It can be something as simple as an email acknowledging the person's efforts to change. 
a note, a handwritten note acknowledging what they're doing. It can be a quick conversation acknowledging progress. Even small steps need to be recognized. Uh, In the example I provided with the, the physician, the recognition was quiet. The attending pulled the doc aside and commented on how much better she was interacting with patients. The attending told the doc that the improved listening was going to pay off with patient health outcomes and patient adherence to treatment plans. Remember, people are going to slide back into old patterns, and that's why it's so very important to recognize when they're off track. You do have to recognize the slide or the reversion and help them make the correction to realign the behavior with what's expected. You know, as I wrap this up, I need to say that getting people to change their behavior is not easy. Heck, it's, it's a struggle for me to change my own behavior. But I do think that we can inspire change with the seven activities that I presented. And let me just quickly review them. First, you got to boost their knowledge. Second, paint a vivid picture. Third, articulate expectations. Fourth, use that feedback loop. Fifth, use influencers. Sixth, emotional persuasion. And second, you got to recognize growth and change to prevent reversion. I believe that we as leaders can help people develop a willingness to step out of patterns of behavior that have been ingrained for years. We can help people change what they do and how they do it. We may even possibly, possibly, possibly through our examples and the organizational culture that we create, we may be able to help people begin to think a bit differently too. So try the seven strategies, modify them, see how they work for you. Try them again. Keep trying them until they become new habits for you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe if you haven't already. I add new and relevant leadership learning all of the time. If you haven't visited the Smichael Speaks YouTube channel, check it out. There's all sorts of new content. All of this is virtual leadership learning that will help you soar.